This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. We've been working on this for a long time. We're not starting today, right? At, at, at Heritage Canada and with colleagues, uh, we've been working uh, for a while. Uh, we did the consultations last summer. Um, and now we came to the conclusion that this next step was absolutely fundamental. To, and this next step, what it is, is for this panel to work on, on uh, to take nine different workshops, to work on different themes, uh, which platforms could be included, how. Uh, it's really up to them. It's not up to me or to the government to tell them what to do. It's, it's, uh, it's not a rubber stamp exercise. It's totally the opposite. And as I mentioned, we put, there are people there that were disagreed with their approach, which is fine, and that's what we want. And at the end of their process, there will be, of course, meeting between them, submitting memoirs, discussing with other people, with the tech giants and others. They will g- give us recommendations on what should be uh, included in a bill. Of course, it's the government that drafts the bill, but that, what would be the element that should be there? Several months ago, Canadian Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez created an expert advisory group on online safety to help craft a potential legislative and policy response to online safety and harms issues. The panel recently concluded its work, And though the media focused on a failure to achieve absolute consensus from a group that by design had different views, the reality is that common ground was found on several key issues. While Rodriguez is now touring the country with further consultation, the panel's guidance is likely to be the key source for any future bill. Emily Laidlaw, who holds the Canada Research Chair in Cybersecurity Law at the University of Calgary, served as co-chair of the expert panel. She joins me on the podcast to talk about how the panel functioned, where it found consensus, areas of disagreement, and what could come next for one of the thorniest internet policy issues. Emily, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Okay, I'm really glad you've, you've come back. We don't have that many repeat guests. You're one of them, and I'm really glad you're uh, taking the time to come on a, and chat. You were co-chair of the Expert Advisory Group on Online Safety, which recently concluded its work. Now, the media, we could talk about this if you like, the media is oddly focused on, on what sees as a failure to achieve absolute consensus from a group that I thought, frankly, was by design representative of different views without a mandate or expectation of consensus recommendations. That said, it seems like you did land on on a, several common points that I'd like to get to. We certainly want to. I certainly want to talk about the substance. But first, if it would be great if you could provide a bit of insight into the process. You know, um, how did the panel function? How regularly did what did you meet? How were the meetings conducted? Uh, people can look online if they want to see who was who was there, but how diverse was the representation? What can you tell us a bit about how you conducted the panel itself? Yes. Uh, you know, one of the first things I want to say is um, I, I have seen the reporting on um, saying that we failed to achieve consensus. And it is worth emphasizing that uh, that was not our mandate. We were not there to to achieve consensus. We were there to kind of unpack these various issues and and try to kind of, you know, identify uh, maybe the things that were important um, from different perspectives. 
And, and because of that, though, without a mandate to achieve consensus, it was surprising how quickly we did have some agreement on some of the major issues, which is, you know, something that we can talk about today. Um, so the process was that we started meeting, um, I'm trying to think, sometime in April, and we met weekly. Every Friday, we all hung out. And uh, uh Heritage had a series of worksheets. And so Pierre Trudel and I were co-chairs of this panel. And uh, we reviewed the various worksheets beforehand to kind of prove and tweak it. And then every week, the panelists were provided with this worksheet. And we would work through it. We would provide our comments. It was uploaded. We could review each other's work. And then we would meet to discuss it. And so, and after every week, um, there would be, uh, there would be a summary prepared. And so as co-chairs, Pierre and I would review these summaries and then they would be posted to the public. Um, we did meet before the meetings on Friday to kind of think through what were some of the major, you know, points that we wanted to tease out of the conversation. And so, uh, Pierre and I would meet with, um, with the secretariat and we also met with Peter McLeod. So he was our facilitator extraordinaire. And, uh, he also led with the commission on democratic expression. So what was great was that he was, you know, very familiar with these issues and the points of debate and could bring that expertise to, to this panel. But we would meet and we would discuss, you know, what are the things, how do we want to kind of structure the conversation? What are some of the major points that we want to, to tease out? Um, for the meetings themselves, Peter, of course, was facilitating. Usually, Pierre and I would kick off with, you know, some broader points about, you know, what we were talking about that day. Um, but then it was really opened up to the group and it was, um, you know, a, a somewhat of a steered conversation, but, uh, everyone else, you know, it, heritage sort of faded to the background. It was really just the panelists having these conversations and, and identifying what we thought would be key issues. And we had the worksheets to kind of guide us on the points we wanted to talk about. And it certainly came up a few times where, you know, individuals say, well, you know, we're not bound by these worksheets. We can talk about whatever we want to talk about with these particular subject matters. And so sometimes we would veer off and go broader or narrower as was necessary. But that was generally the process. It was it was conversation um, over the course of uh, uh, two months. You've hinted already at, at some of the interchange between the government or, or heritage officials with the secretariat and the like, but I wonder if you could flesh that out a bit more. Um, were you, did you feel fully independent in terms of the conversation? Was there any influence or pressure that was brought to bear on any sort of issues? And I'm curious if this was primarily or purely the, the bureaucracy heritage officials or to what extent would that was the political side involved as well? Uh, I, so I, I felt like the process was independent. And um, to the extent that I remember there were, uh, there was one point I was asking a question of them and they said, no, no, we're not involved. We don't want to be telling you how to talk about this or what to talk about. And so I appreciated that independence. It was more um, a matter of, of support to the extent that they would, you know, they were preparing these summaries. So I, I was glad that I didn't have that obligation and they were quite, um, uh, 
complex and meandering conversations at times. So to draw together those different pieces was was a difficult task. Um, where there was a little bit more guidance was it was they they had an idea of a new plan, and that plan was this idea of. Um, platforms or intermediaries, online services, whatever you want to call it, having uh, risk management obligations or duty of care, um, due diligence. And so they were presenting in some ways a new framework and then wanting to dive deeper on some of the challenges that arose out of last summer. So the guidance was in the form of the worksheets that they created. Uh, but because we weren't bound by them, there was some flexibility. So we added a session um, to dive deeper on what a duty of care or responsibility might actually look like because there was some appetite to do that. Um, but the panel was relatively, you know, left alone to have the conversations that that we were going to have. Um, I think that where there was some discussion was what our role was about um, consultation. So were we involved in the consultation or not involved in the consultation? And I think that that was a bit of a struggle because the timeline was short, right? And so either the consultation was going to have to be extended over a much longer period of time and then the panel was retained, you know, kept on for that, or we weren't part of the consultation, but we couldn't have it you know, we couldn't do a mini consultation like was envisioned. And so uh, that was where um, I think the decision, you know, was was made by the panel, but um, I wouldn't say mutually. It was just the decision generally was made then that there would be the panel would not engage in consultation. Interesting. But it does it, it does sound that rather than than looking to the panel to sort of sort of float up a framework or ideas, having been burned in a sense from its last consultation, which was so widely panned, they kind of went back to the drawing board a little bit with some new ideas and were basically road testing a bit with a, with an expert panel that brought a diversity of views. Is that, is that a fair way to characterize how, how you kind of saw this playing out a little bit? Yeah, that's a really good way of phrasing it is road testing a new framework. And, you know, it wasn't so limited to the extent if we'd said, I think that this is a really bad idea um there was a i think there would have been a lot of room to then talk about something else what it should look like um but there was from the beginning a real kind of consistent support for the idea of some form of risk management obligations and so there was some alignment there of course you know from there there's a lot of nitty-gritty details where there might be a lot of disagreement um, but, um, yeah, they, I mean, you know, there was a wide criticism of the proposal last summer. And so then what they came back with, uh, was, was quite different for us to explore where they, they did raise a few, um, I guess questions as we were going along would be, uh, if, if we provided feedback and we were a bit high level about it and they said you know we're gonna have to walk away and draft this stuff it would be great to actually dig deeper on certain issues right whether it was mandatory reporting whether it was um really specifically the scope of the services or or the scope of the subject matter to try to nail that down a little bit better and so and and i thought that was fair i didn't mind that because that um 
those were conversations we could have. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. One, one last piece on the process, and then we'll get into some of those substantive questions. So the panelists are there, people, officials from different departments. I think if you take a look at the, the minutes or the record, you see that there's a bunch of officials uh, would sometimes be in attendance. Uh, who else was there? Were there, were the platforms invited to participate or present or provide any ideas? Were there international experts or or others that that were invited as guests for any of these hearings or was it largely confined just to you and um, and some of the various government officials or more as observers? Yeah, there were various government officials as observers and that was it. I mean, you had representatives from public safety and I said and um, uh, RCMP at times, CSC, et cetera. So they were just sort of in, in the background um, and, uh, but there was absolutely no one else in the meeting. And and they didn't speak, so there was no opportunity for them to ask questions or or for clarification or for us to ask them questions. Um, there was no industry, no uh, representation from civil society, and that so that was one of the points that we discussed at the beginning, which was, you know, we can't be this group that just sits around and picks and chooses who who we're having conversations with. So we're either widely doing it or or not at all. So in the end, we did not engage with any, um, you know, anyone outside really ourselves and and um, and heritage. Now, we except for the, there was one exception to this, and that is as we went along, we were doing quite a bit of comparative work uh, looking at developments in the EU with the Digital Services Act and the UK with the online safety bill, which we know um, has now um, been put on pause. And um, also looking um, somewhat at Australia with their online safety model and the e-safety commissioner. And so because of that, there, uh, as we kept kind of playing with this idea, we wanted to to meet with those jurisdictions or representatives from those jurisdictions. And so we did. So those were the only three meetings we had outside ourselves were with representatives from the EU, UK and Australia. So that was a good fit. Interesting that you had that discussion about if you're faced with the challenge of figuring who's in, who's out, that it was best just to limit to yourselves. And of course, the government made an effort to try to ensure that it was a pretty broad range of views, I think, on this panel to begin with you know, in the end, our view was this is not our consultation and this is not our bill. I mean, we're there as, as, you know, this kind of expert panel to, to provide our input, but this isn't something that we're supposed to be running. And so it was, uh, it was clear as we went along that we shouldn't be part of that process. Okay. Interesting. All right. Let's, let's talk then about some of that expert input that you, that you, you were providing. Um, you, you provided soon after the report was released a bit of a tweet stream that identified several of the key themes, it provides a pretty good starting point for thinking about some of these issues. Uh, and it starts with the, the notion of a duty to act responsibly. Can you explain a bit what that means and how it might be applied to internet platforms or, or other organizations or companies involved in the internet space? Yeah, so we were quite influenced by the work of the Commission on Democratic Expression. And, you know, two of our panelists had been on that commission. And so what, you know, that very first meeting, which you have this sort of, let's just lay it all out on the floor and talk about, you know, all the things we want to talk about. From even that first meeting, we were exploring this idea. So a duty to act responsibly is the idea that, um, these online services have uh, an obligation to manage the risks of harm of their services. 
And that's it. And I will, uh, you know, one thing I'd like to get into in, in a few minutes was that we then fleshed that out to be, you have a duty to manage the risks of harm, but also a duty to, to protect human rights. Um, but it's generally risk management. It's about the system, not about individual content decisions. So it's not the idea that an, a service might face a fine or investigation or liability because of one particular post. It's the idea, you know, if we look at your system, are you oriented in 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 the direction of 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 harm? Um, I was about to say harm reduction, but that actually became a point of dispute because how do you measure, you know, reduction of harm? So it's a matter of managing these risks of harm. And uh, and this is familiar elsewhere. So it seems consistent with kind of global, um, uh, I guess, the next iteration of uh, intermediary uh regulations that we're seeing there with the DSA, with the online safety bill. And even in Australia, a lot of the kind of codes of practice that they're developing, which is, look, these companies, um, you know, they should have obligations to assess and identify what the risks of harm are. They should monitor for those risks of harm. And I don't mean this in the sense of proactive monitoring of content. I just mean they should be assessing their systems. And they should act then on um, on their findings, and uh, they should be transparent about it. They should be reporting to the public about it, and there should be some sort of then oversight of their success in or their due diligence in trying to put in place some sort of system. Okay, how you you mentioned that it's. In creating these kinds of systems, it's not just about harm reduction, but there's also a, a human rights freedom of expression side to it as well. You know, were there thoughts about how how you either, either strike that balance or ensure that you've got systems that account for both? Because obviously there's going to be real pressures at times to say, well, we want, you know, we would like to see you remove content. That's certainly what we saw early on with some of the early consultations. And and perhaps there'll, there'll be some of that pressure yet again. Uh, but when you talk about the need for due process, talk about protecting expression, privacy, and the like, um, that can sometimes run counter to some of those ideas of rapid removal of content, let's say. Yeah, I think it can run counter at times. And sometimes they're kind of mutually reinforcing as well. Um, th so the way we envision it is that you have these twin obligations. So you, this, this protection from harm and uh, protection of human rights. So let's put those alongside each other. If a company is putting in place um, you know, let's say that they need to uh, put in place a system to try to address hate speech, for example, or violent and extremist content. Uh, if it's just focused on harm reduction, um, in particular for maybe, you know, smaller companies, um, smaller online services, there might be an incentive then to reduce harm to put in place some blunt system of content takedown, some sort of automated system that over removes content. But if there's also an obligation to um, protect human rights, then they might, then they will have to scrutinize what they decide to do more closely, right? To say, look, have we just put in place kind of a system here that's gonna end up 
a, as a system of just general surveillance of users, which would cause privacy concerns? Or are we putting in place some sort of just blunt system of over removal and suddenly that's having a major impact on free expression? And it's not that they have to just perfectly hit the sweet spot, right? Because I think that we realize in this space that it's challenging no matter what, but it's having some sort of defensible system that we did impact assessments for harm for uh, human rights. And and this is where we landed, given our particular service in sort of balancing and protecting these different rights. Okay. You, you mentioned hate speech and, and other forms of speech. That first consultation paper focused on what they saw as five main forms of speech that they wanted to target that they saw as being um, illegal or raising issues that where they thought that the government could act more directly. One of the criticisms I recall from people responding to that consultation was treating everything the same and that that there there wasn't the kind of granular assessment of different kinds of harms, different kinds of speech that might require different sorts of responses. What was the panel's th thinking on on this issue? Did it the, both with respect to grouping together all of these different areas, but then also potentially saying that 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 was underrepresentative and that there needed to be other issues that raise potential harms that ought to be considered as well? Yeah, we talked about it extensively and it was a real struggle. And um, I think that the one that very clearly emerged as being different than the others was protection of children and child sexual abuse content um, that justified stronger obligations on different online services that uh, justified stronger takedown obligations. And so every once in a while, the point was raised is, should this be actually dealt with here or under separate legislation just because it's so unique, right? The, those, the particular risks in that area and harms. And um, I think that, you know, I would view it as resolved. I don't know if all the other panelists would. It seemed that one way through it was a special duty of responsibility towards children. And we do see that kind of language emerge. I mean, the UK online safety bill uses that language, but that then was an avenue to deal with that content differently. Um, occasionally, there was discussion about maybe even intimate images generally fitting in a different category, because it's a little bit easier to, I, I say a little bit easier in that category to identify, you know, some of the harms with it and, and less risks of impacts on other human rights. Um, but generally speaking, the idea of a duty to act responsibly and is different than duty of care. Um, I initially, I said, why wouldn't you just make it a duty of care or just talk about it in terms of due diligence obligations? But it was to separate it from just the legal um, uh, kind of framework of duty of care under tort law that it would end up just being this sort of, you know, shackling it to this case law that it doesn't need to be. Um, but the idea is that, you know, all kinds of different online services should have a duty to act responsibly for the risks of harm generally. So why limit the scope? And that in doing so, yeah, different content might be dealt with differently, but it can still be under this umbrella of a duty to act responsibly. So there was no need to, to split it up. This is where it gets difficult, though, is, well, is it beyond those five categories of content? Um, because it seems like these are egregious forms of, of kind of create egregious forms of harm, but there's other things that are harmful. So are we talking about fraud here as well? Um, are we talking more generally about, you know, privacy invasions? And if you start getting into defamation, well, then it's no, you know, you're dealing with areas then that are provincial 
um, jurisdiction. And so the, the, the scope of that, I don't think was fully resolved. We just sort of kicked it back and said, this should be a broad duty. Um, and, uh, but there is a scoping issue here. It maybe is defensible for now to focus on those five categories because of the fact that you're trying to kind of build this right. And, um, uh, but it can't be for all, all forms of harm and all forms of illegality, the way that the EU has done it. Um, you know, they're really looking at kind of creating, you know, laws that are more standardized across the EU, which I think we have a very different dynamic here in Canada. So it's just not going to fly here. And, uh, and so I, you know, we didn't come to a fully satisfactory conclusion. And I, I'll say too that, you know, when we got to the end of that process, I, something that I really struggled with was with some of the practicality of this is, uh, you know, maybe they should start small. I mean, we'll talk in a little bit about the idea of a regulator, but, um, you know, if you look at Australia, they started quite narrow and then they built it from there. Right. And so it was established, it was surrounded about child protection and then they could kind of extend the scope of it once it was established. I mean, the point has been made to me, and I think it is a fair point, is that this might not work in Canada because they won't revisit it and broaden the scope. It'll just be like, okay, it's done now, it's great. Um, and, and my fear is that the climate in which that was passed in Australia, this was back in 2014, I think the ship has sailed. And in Canada, if we take a look at it here, there are, you know, the, the what we've seen with the harms of violent and extremist content, it means that, um, I think it would be hard and hate speech. We'd be hard pressed to create something now that didn't cover those issues. The one where we, uh, had quite a bit of discussion and, and, and disagreement is disinformation. And I don't know if you want me to talk about that one right now, but sure you can. It's, yeah. it's represents, I think, in many ways, most the toughest issues. It's one of the first things people mention, but it also represents such a difficult challenge in terms of being able to both identify what that means to slot it within the charter and be curious about what those discussions were like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it, and it was fascinating. And I think that, you know, we recognize from the beginning that disinformation is is kind of one of the the major almost existential types of threats that we're facing and it needs to be dealt with but that law is really one avenue in to addressing the problem and so we had to look realize the limits of the law here and so not looking at at it to solve all problems in this particular area and that also we have some charter considerations that a whole bunch of disinformation is that category of lawful but awful and um, so it's not the role of the law to then deal with that. But this is where um, we then went with that. Um, generally speaking, the idea that services should manage the risks of harm could include disinformation, right? It would not include actioning the content as in taking it down. Um, and I think that that's really important to tease out here is that the duty to be responsible might be all the different ways that we've seen these companies and platforms um, sort of mitigate those risks where it is demoting content, it's flagging content, 
Um, it's, it's, uh, you know, all, all the different ways, like nudging them in particular directions and behavior in a particular direction. Um, so that content removal is probably one of the weakest ways to try to deal with disinformation, but the duty to act responsibly might mean that they have to have some system in place to deal with it. Here's the problem though. Do we, do we really target it directly in the legislation or do you just say, look, manage your risks of harm and disinformation just might be part of that. I mean, if we look at Europe at the DSA, they talk about disinformation in the recitals, but they actually don't mention it at all in the kind of content in, in the specific provisions in the DSA. They just say, hey, if you're a very large online platform, manage those risks. Yeah, no, I mean, once you get into those areas, I could see some of the larger players seeking to cooperate and say, okay, we understand that this kind of comes with the cost of doing business or as a sense part of our overall responsibility. I can also see certain other platforms might be less willing to play along, let's say, and would be to the extent to which it became a core part of the legislative mandate would be looking to find a way to challenge it. Um, and say that the government is overstepping if it's going to actually legislate, um, let's say, demotion of content, which has been a, a hot button issue lately within C11, just on just basic discoverability issues. Imagine applying that more broadly to all kinds of just about anything beyond even just audiovisual content. And it becomes, you know, one can imagine the kind of co complexity and controversy that might be associated with that. Yeah. And it, and it could uh, end up being, you know, that the poison pill, right? Because the one thing that was in the back of our minds was this is so important. We need this legislation. This is a giant gap in Canadian law. So we need something. What are the things that are going to absolutely tank a bill like this? And, um, and, and I have to say that we didn't come to, uh, a, a, I think agreement or a conclusion when it came to disinformation, except for the fact that it would be highly controversial. And where I landed is, you, you have constitutional hurdles here and you're looking at lawful but awful information. So for not for all of it, but for quite a bit of it. So they have to tread quite carefully. Yeah, no, I think oh, I, I'd be in agreement certainly with that. I, I want to pull on a few threads that, that you happen to mention as part of the kinds of things that you were doing. One, you talked about transparency and the need for transparency. Um, did what did the panel have some ideas about what that might look like in terms of trend, uh, reporting requirements or access to data rights? Uh, what were some of the kinds of things that came out of that? So this became part of a conversation about what the role of this regulator might be, um, you know, in terms of the content of transparency. We we are, actually didn't go in as much depth as I think all of us maybe thought we could have on what makes for good transparency reporting. Um, but part of that was because the view was that's going to change over time. I mean, this is a this is a really new area. You know, when we look at the DSA and the online safety bill in the UK and these new approaches, this is a regulatory experiment and it's necessary. I mean, we need to go there. I think it's my view would be it has been unsatisfying and hasn't properly dealt with some of the harms or protection of rights. So this is a really interesting approach. Um, but it's an experiment to say what transparency reporting is. We can pull from business and human rights, but it's not settled. So that's why a regulator needs to have freedom to develop this through codes of practice. 
right? Working with industry, working with civil society, it can change over time what transparency reporting needs to look like. There was recognition about how transparency reporting can be a way to that. It's almost a form of PR. It can game the system. There's no way of even necessarily checking um, whether the metrics really give you the information that you need. I see this as an ongoing problem in transparency reporting. And I know that Daphne Keller has has put together this Google document and and it is all the different kind of analysis and reports about transparency reporting right now. So this is a live and ongoing issue. One way to address this though is about access by researchers. To, to that data to be able to kind of test and oversee this transparency reporting. And there was wide agreement that that's needed. This is something that the DSA in, has adopted in the EU and I think is a necessary component. I mean, don't bother with transparency reporting requirements without that, that form of oversight. Yeah, no, and it's uh, the notion that the academic community that can play some of that NGO community more broadly is, is yes. something that is, is increasingly accepted. I think that's right. You, you've you've obviously already hinted that uh, a regulator is part of the, the the panel came away thinking that there is the need for a regulator. Uh, you talked about co- the potential for codes of practice there. Can you expand a bit on on what you're thinking is there in terms of uh, the part the prospect of a, a new regulatory body to to deal with many of these issues? Yes, so there was quite wide agreement that we need a new regulator and that uh, it would operate almost like a privacy commissioner, assuming the privacy commissioner has the powers that we would (laughs) hope the privacy commissioner would have. Uh, So it would be uh, somebody who has the power to investigate and to audit these online services and have the power to impose fines, not by a tribunal, but uh, the commissioner themselves would have the power to impose fines in in extraordinary circumstances. Um, And that the commissioner would play a key role of kind of education and collaboration with NGOs, with industry, um, that would be key to developing these different codes of practice. And I, I mean, I, I'm really enamored with the idea of this in this space. I think it's been needed for a long time because the solutions here aren't blunt. The solutions here too are for the most part, not through the courts. What you need is somebody that's sort of that that in-between role in developing and lifting standards of practice. Uh, so I, I think one of the big questions is where would you house this? And um, I am firmly of the view that this should not be with the CRTC. This would have to be an independent body. Um, the UK, uh, if it unpauses its online safety bill, was already looking to hire about 500 people with Ofcom, which is their CRTC. And that is where they were going to house it. I think that's absolutely wrong. I mean, back when I I did my PhD and I was looking at what a digital regulator would look like, I had examined, I was in the UK. And so I had examined kind of different regulatory bodies. And I said, just the one that's an absolute no would be Ofcom. And it's, it's not that they don't have key expertise. I think the thinking in the UK was, look, they've got enforcement powers and they have real, you know, depth of expertise in, in doing that. Um, I, I think that the problem is, is that we are dealing here with a body that's essentially a digital human rights commissioner. 
So that is, they're always dealing with human rights. And I should, I always say human rights here, but in the Canadian context, you know, we're dealing with uh, constitutional issues, including special protections for Indigenous peoples. And so we have a person who needs to be finely tuned to tech issues, but also to how that balances with human rights and how this balances globally. So it needs to be a new regulator in my view. Um, but if we cast ahead five years, I think that what we're going to start seeing is uh, the existence of these digital or digital safety commissioners or whatever they are in different jurisdictions and kind of collaborating in investigations or sharing of best practices. You know, we have, we can learn from the Australian experience, although it's a bit of a different framework than what we're exploring. There's a lot to learn from them. And, um, and I think that, you know, we're seeing this now pop up in the EU and potentially the UK. So it's going to be an interesting environment five years from now. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that does sound uh, like a, a nascent community similar to the privacy and data protection commissioner community when you start thinking about the prospect of parallel type administrators or regulators whatever the role happens to be and beginning to work together because these issues often will cross borders uh, I think yeah i close. think that's it is that global uh environment is key here we can't think of canada as a silo at all in the area i mean we can't generally with internet regulation but in the area of online harms in particular so here's the big question mark though the big question mark is should there be a recourse body some sort of recourse council uh there was broad kind of, I would say, broad agreement about the idea of an ombudsperson that would be separate from the commissioner and be available to the public to be able to um, kind of guide them through, you know, provide, help them through these particular, you know, online harms issues. Where there wasn't uh, less agreement was, should there be recourse for individual pieces of content? Um, you know, if you're looking at a duty to act responsibly and it's focused on systems, then you're not talking about individual pieces of content. But the reality is for victims groups, they don't have access to any form of justice to address some of their harms. I mean, so that overstates it, actually. Um, they have opportunities through various platforms as a first step, some, not others. And even for the ones with developed systems, they can fail. So we do have a profound access to justice problem here. Um, but can that be resolved through a recourse council? And are you talking about takedown of content, right? So are we saying that an individual could appeal from, I don't know, Reddit and some decision and, um, and say, no, that actually that content should have been taken down, something like that, or Facebook or whoever it is you want to talk about. Uh, and, uh, you know, potentially, yes, I've always been worried about volume, but, you know, it has been pointed out that there's ways to curb that. In speaking with the e-safety commissioner, over seven years, there's been about 70,000 complaints, but it's very narrow in scope. So some of what we explored was no recourse body. Yes to a recourse body, but maybe it's just limited to um, uh, to take down decisions about uh, child sexual abuse images and intimate images, like really narrow in scope. Um, and, uh, and I, I, we never solved that one. I think it's such a difficult one because, you know, the government would really have to be prepared to put resources towards it. Right. And of course, 
complementary to this is the potential for kind of the reviving of Section 13. So there might be an avenue through the Human Rights Commission to address it. But that's, again, user to user. That's not talking about the role uh, specifically of, of platforms. Yeah, no. Well, your comments raise a whole series of, of issues. I mean, it does come to mind that I actually would think the right to be forgotten complaint numbers would be perhaps a bit more indicative of the kinds of complaints because many get dismissed, but that's that's a more direct uh, someone who feels very personally that if there's information out there that might be legal, but is still harmful and they want to see it removed. And the volumes are certainly higher than the 70,000 or so that you talked about. We're talking hundreds of thousands of those kinds of complaints. So it raises that question, of course, and paying for it. It seems to me the government always just wants the platforms at this in these situations now to pay for just about the entire regulatory infrastructure. That's, that's, that's their vision on a number of these different things. I would assume it would be here too. You talk, you, you've talked a bit about where there have been some areas of, of disagreement. So there was obviously a lot of consensus, but there may be some issues where you didn't agree. Can you, I guess, expand a little bit on, on some of those issues where that, that proved to be so thorny that basically people just put out differing views and it will ultimately, I suppose, fall to the government to have to make a call. Well, so and I think one was disinformation, which we talked about, which was how explicitly to deal with that one. And, um, and I think that the, well, there are various ones that we never quite came to agreement on. Uh, We would get halfway there, though. So I think that that's productive. So for one is mandatory reporting. Should there be mandatory reporting obligations on these services? I think everyone in the room was widely in agreement that mandatory reporting, broadly scoped, could have significant um, negative impacts on marginalized and racialized groups. So, what do you go? Where do you go from there, though? Where we know that there's, you know, significant threats associated with even like oftentimes it's these particular groups that are also the targets of these forms of online abuse. So they're vulnerable at both ends, right? And so what do we do from there? And I think the view was, you know, one view was, look, these companies, at least some of the major platforms, not, you know, of course, not the rogue ones, right? The rogue intermediary services um, will report to the police if they're, uh, are, you know, risks of, you know, if it looks like there's um, violent or extremist content and there's an imminent risk of harm, Um, maybe it should be left voluntary. Uh, Others were of the view that maybe it could be narrowed, right? So that there's mandatory reporting in very narrow circumstances. I know one of the things that I had floated was the idea that um, perhaps it very narrowly where a service has actual knowledge as in, so they're not proactively monitoring for it, but they have actual knowledge of content where there's an imminent risk of violence that they would, could have a, um, obligation to report that. I think that there was a view though, too, that this could be a poison pill for this legislation and that maybe mandatory reporting to the extent it's dealt with, is dealt with elsewhere, right? There's already mandatory reporting obligations for child sexual abuse content. So maybe they should just revisit the Mandatory Reporting Act just separately and just not deal with it here at all. And I'm struck by how many times you've referenced concern around poison pills and you know, potential challenge. It sounds like 
there was very much a desire to come up with something that was workable, practical, as opposed to sort of in a dream world, here's what I might come up with, but knowing that it's subject to all all kinds of potential barriers or challenges. Part of what part of the thinking was, what can we do now, given the view that there is a need to do something? Yeah, and I that that's absolutely correct. And I think that we have the benefit, you know, of being uh, a late mover in this space that came up quite often as well. Um, that could also become a problem if we don't act soon. Um, but the UK is is a place that we can take a look at right now. What, how long has they been, you know, in the works? About five years for this online safety bill. And now it's been put on pause. And of course, last minute addition suddenly of these broadly scoped disinformation provisions that were really problematic, right? So I look at that and say, the core idea you came up with initially was actually okay, but it just became and morphed into this overly complex beast that was highly unworkable. And so that was floating around in the back of, of many of our minds as we were having these discussions that it's just, we need to think through what's going to work right now because everyone in that room, although from totally different areas of expertise, all were oriented in the direction of wanting to do something. Okay. Let's, 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 let's wrap with this. And it's interesting, as you've mentioned, it was a pretty wide range of views in terms of sub substantively where they're at, but uh, common agreement on there are real issues here that require a policy legal response. As I look through the report, I listened to what you've had to say. It feels like the panel based on the, the government's own framing. Uh, so the government provided a framing, you provided feedback. There's a fair amount there for, for the government potentially to act on. Yet I now see the heritage minister touring Canada and he's got tweets pretty regularly about meeting with this group or that group and talk of further consultation. What are your thoughts on, on next steps? We've had one failed consultation last summer. We've had now this panel work. Now we have what appears to be some further consultation. Does the government have what it needs to move forward with this issue? I mean, I think that the short answer is I don't know. And I, you know, I do see that they're engaging in these con consultations. And um, I think it's incredibly important that they talk with industry, because I think that there's a lot that, um, you know, they're talking to a civil society, which is important, because I think what one of the unanswered things for us was that recourse council. So I think that they need to hear from victims to have a sense of, of what's actually going to work right you know what is it that you're that you need out of an online harms legislation and we didn't fully answer that um but i do i do think that they need to be speaking with industry to understand a lot better what kind of the behaviors are on their services how they vary um what the different efforts are in play and how maybe legislation could give voice to that and accountability for that. Um, and maybe get some of these different groups in the room together, which would, which would be effective. But I don't know what their plans are. I mean, I know that they have a consultation process in place, but I, what I'm curious about is, okay, when's the bill then going to come forward? I mean, how quickly are you actioning this? Um, and, and I think that that is going to be the kind of the final thing that we're, we're going to take a look at is I'm going to be reading that bill and saying, does this reflect the things that were really key and meaningful that we were emphasizing in these meetings? Well, still some question marks to be sure, but it's pretty clear that your panels provided 
uh, certainly a lot of food for thought and, and even more potentially a, a roadmap for how some of these issues get balanced out. So so thank you for all the, the work you put in. It quite clearly must have been a really intense period of time if you're meeting weekly as you were for a couple of months. And thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time.